It's my first semester at seminary, and one of my first classes was a class on how to study your Bible. And the professor of that class, his name was Howard Hendricks. He was about 80 years old at the time. And he was dynamic in the classroom. I mean, it was a large auditorium full of uh, students, mainly in their 20s and 30s. And we all sat there with our laptops and we were typing furiously, wanting to get everything that he said. I mean, so much so that when he prayed, I was taking notes. Because I wanted to be able to pray with the intimacy and the intensity with which he prayed. I mean, the life of Christ just flowed out of this man, and I wanted to capture everything. And so I went on to grade papers for him and to take several, several other classes from him. Ate dinner with him in his home a couple times, and I will tell you, he was the most relevant, the most contemporary man I've ever met in my life, and he was 80. He didn't own a TV. He said, hey, I'm supposed to think about things that are good and pleasing and perfect. TV doesn't help me do that. But at the same time, he read, he, read, um, he was a voracious reader. He studied the scriptures. He read newspapers. He wanted to know what was going on. And he was the most optimistic man I've ever met in my life. I never heard him say an unkind thing about anybody. He was so optimistic about what was going on in the church and what God was doing in the church and the next generation of people who God was raising up to lead. And so he was giving his life to pour into that generation. And I can tell you, he marked my life. He was one of those guys who I will never be the same for having been in his company, for having known him and been around him. And you know, as you think back over the course of your life, there's people like that, right, who you will never be the same for having known them. They've so marked your life with the way they've lived and and what they've imparted to you, maybe good, maybe bad. But we we have the ability, all of us, to mark people's lives, to impact people for good or evil, and, and we want to be the kind of people who impact people for Jesus, that because they've been around us, they will never be the same. They will, they will never live life the same way again for having been around us. You know, we're in a series we started last week. I think it is an exciting series called At Our Core. We're examining just who we are at Central and how we can more move forward in unity with a clear mission and a clear vision of who God has called us to be. And so we said last week that Central exists to share Jesus and impact people. That the core of who we are is ultimately to share Jesus and to impact people. And last week we talked about sharing Jesus and how this isn't some kind of optional thing. That we don't get to choose and say, well, you know, I'm comfortable doing that, so I'll go ahead and do that. And it's not some kind of command only given to super saints. But it's a command for all of us, that that we're all on mission, that the entire church gets to be a part of this process to share Jesus. And so this this morning, though, we're going to look at the second half of that mission statement, to impact people. And and what does that look like? You know, we we know the the, the famous verse that Jesus said in the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And we know that verse. And we know that we're supposed to be on mission, making disciples as we go, just to impact people. And so this morning, we're going to dive into some questions on, okay, well, what exactly is a disciple? 
How do you make a disciple? Where is a disciple made? What does a disciple look like? How do we do that? And, you know, it's one of those church words, you know, disciple, that, that sometimes defining it can be difficult. And so we're going to try to define it this morning. And, and, um, and to do that, you know, as normally my practice is to open up a, a text with you and to explain it and to explore it and to see how this works in our lives. This morning we're going to use a little more systematic theology and I'm going to be jumping from passage to passage all around the New Testament. And you can follow along. I encourage you maybe to jot down some of the references or you can just listen uh, carefully to the passages that we go to. But, um, but I am going to be jumping around quite a bit this morning as we look and examine just what a disciple maker does. How do we make a disciple? Because oftentimes we can have this idea that to make a disciple means that we put together some kind of program and we walk them through a classroom setting and then voila, by the end of it, there, we've made a disciple. But as we look at the way Jesus made disciples, you know, one of his primary teaching techniques was questions, where he asked a lot of questions. He told stories. He put them in situations. He lived life with them. And then he asked questions. So we're going to be looking at that a little bit and thinking about that, that that as we make disciples, it's mainly just throughout the course of our life. It's not something that necessarily is just taught, but that is caught by being around someone. That that we purposely and intentionally try to impact people for Jesus. And when you intentionally try to impact someone to look more like Jesus, you have engaged in the disciple-making process. Because that's really what it's about, is that I'm purposefully investing in you in some degree so that you will look more like Jesus. That's discipleship. And when you've made a mature disciple, then that person is doing the same thing. So to look at it, I want to start with um, a a guy named Norman Shawchuck. He wrote a book, a very helpful book, entitled What It Means to Be a Christian Leader. In that book, he made the statement, he said, I have counseled hundreds of pastors who have tried to build a ministry on foundations of hard work, education, charisma, politics, popularity. I can tell you, it doesn't work. The soul will bring forth fruit exactly, exactly in the measure in which the inner life is developed in it. If there is no inner life, However great may be the zeal, however high the intention, the hard work, the permanent fruit, no permanent fruit will come forth. See, the spiritual life impacts everything else. You remove the spiritual life, your spiritual life from the equation, your connectedness to God, your empowerment by the Holy Spirit, and everything else crumbles. One author, he put it this way, and just see if you resonate with any of these statements. He said that activity increases, filling consciences with trivial tasks, but leaving little awareness of God. Do you ever identify with that at all? You seem to get closer and closer to the text. Maybe I've got this Bible reading program, but for some reason I still feel further and further from God. He continues, tiredness prevails. Every action requires more and more effort. Joy in serving is lost. Duty prevails. You crank it out. You're doing what you know you're supposed to be doing, but there's no fun in the process. There's no excitement in the process. 
He goes on, serving has a dullness and continues from habit with little sense of the presence and the reality of God. Encounters with holy things do not stir the soul. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you find it difficult to talk about spiritual things? Is it, is it hard for you to talk about spiritual things with with your neighbor or, or your friend or your spouse or your, your kids, your coworkers, is, is that hard? When, when the topic turns to spiritual things, do your eyes just kind of glaze over? I had a pastor friend of mine one time say to me, Steve, let's just not talk shop. This is not shop. I'm giving my life to this. This is the passion. This is what comes up within me. This is not just shop. This is not just something I do for a paycheck. This is who I am. See, you, you got to study this. You, you want a good study on the spiritual life and the importance of, of, of this being just so exciting. You look at the book of Malachi, okay, and, and particularly the first half of the book of Malachi. And in that first half, God hammers the priest, okay? He hammers the priest because, by the way, from God's point of view, um, they're the responsible ones. They're, they're the ones. I mean, he, he, God says, hey, don't tell me about the people and how they're kind of following away. You're the ones that's out of line because you're called to lead them. And the prophets, the priests, they're saying in the book of Malachi, it's all weariness to me. How tragic, how sad that the serving of God and leading his people can become some type of burden, a weary duty. It ought to be more exciting for us each and every single day to realize that God has handpicked us to impact people in this generation. May we never get over that fact. That it ought to be always, always the product of, of our spiritual life and it just flows out of this. So this morning is a highly personal message a challenging message, but I hope an encouraging message to provide from you some, just some direction, maybe a definition that will require application on all of our parts to be the disciple makers, to impact people the way God has called us to. So to begin, I, I want to give you a definition of what a disciple is. And that really is the core of the message this morning of what a disciple is, what the life of a disciple is, and this is critical. And because we throw this Christian term around disciple, and sometimes, you know, if someone were to ask you, okay, so what is a disciple? You know, what, what would you say? Do you have a definition ready to go? Do you, do, do you know how that would be defined? Well, I want to help you along these lines. And the, the simplest way, I think, to do that is to say that the life of a disciple involves four statements. Okay, four statements. First is a what statement. What a life, the life of a disciple is. And so, the life of a disciple is the life of Christ. That's the life of a disciple. The life of a disciple is the life of Christ. And so you have people ask, hey, what, what, is a disciple, what does a disciple look like? And the answer, well, hey, we can begin with four gospels. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we get to see the perfect disciple maker, the perfect disciple, and what a disciple's life truly looks like. Because being a disciple of Jesus is not simply a religion. It is a relationship to a person. And so this is why this um, great 
professor of mine said to me and my classmates, master the master's life. Master the master's life. Greatest counsel I've ever got from the greatest professor I've ever had. And that's what I'm recommending to you. To master the master's life. Being a disciple is a supernatural life in which everything is coming from God and nothing is coming from you. And so you got, you got to chew on that for a long time because so many people think that the life of a disciple is trying harder and just doing more. And that's why, unfortunately, we, we, we see a number of Christians who just don't make it and they fall. And because they, they don't know what the, what the life of a disciple is all about. The Jesus says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. That we got to work hard at resting in him. That that's where the power is. Let me take you to several passages you need to study along these lines. I'm not going to have time to read through them all, but you can maybe jot them down. The first one is Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about the Beatitudes. And I encourage you to major on the Beatitudes. It's why when I first got here, the very first sermon I preached was through, or series I preached was through the Beatitudes. Because Jesus, he begins this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with these incredible statements. And all of these statements are dramatically opposed to, the, to our culture. I mean, in our, in our society, you would never come up uh, with what he says based on our social experience. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit. G- give me a break. Nobody's saying that. And, and this is why we got to study this, because we got to think how the Beatitudes apply to our lives in our society, how it revolutionizes our thinking. It's this mind-blowing experience, because this is a radical life. To the world, it looks upside down, but through the lens of Jesus, we see it's right-side-up living in an upside-down world. And we want to impact people to have these radical lives, to live the life of Christ. You can also jot down Galatians 5, through 26. It's the passage on the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And you go down through that list of the fruit of the Spirit, and you got to ask yourself, you know, if you want to know if you're making progress yourself as being a disciple conformed into the image of Christ When's the last time you did something kind for someone? That not, not because you felt like you're obligated to or some sense of duty to do it, not because you wanted any kind of recognition or for people to take notice of you, but, but simply you felt prompted by the Spirit to do something kind. When's the last time you were a peacemaker, right? When's the last time that you just had joy in the face of a difficult circumstance? And you know that the Spirit produced that within you, that in and of yourself, you would never see that situation and and have any sense of joy because of it. See, and and you look at this, and you say, "This, this is what the Spirit produces. 
This is the life the Spirit produces. You know, I'm so excited that at our school, there is a commitment to teach kids how to live lives governed by the Spirit so that they know, hey, they are meant to be fruit-bearing vessels. And this is the type of fruit that's produced. And, you know, we never get over that truth. That, that, that fruit is, continues to be produced in all of us. We never graduate from the fruit of the Spirit. And notice in this passage, you were to study this passage through. You see, before this, uh, Paul's writing, and he says, the deeds of the flesh are, plural. The deeds of the flesh are. And then he gives this list of the deeds of the flesh, and it's all bad stuff. And then you get to this point, and it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular. Okay, it's one fruit. It's not a whole bunch of different fruit. It's one fruit that manifests itself in a number of ways. So I don't get to say, you know, I feel like I'm gentle and I have some self-control, but I'm not very joyful or kind. That's not the fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit produces it all. It's one fruit, it manifests itself in different ways, but the fruit of the Spirit is singular, one fruit. And so a disciple's life sees this fruit being produced in it by the Spirit. You get it all. Another passage to jot down, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. Uh, many theologians call this the ladder of spiritual development. And in it, Peter, Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In this passage, we know that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Therefore, this is what you do. You make every effort to add to your faith. And then there's this progression but you make every effort. See, there's no passivity in, in evangelicalism. At least there shouldn't be. There should be no passivity in the church. And it's painful to watch people just sitting around sucking in all this truth, but not seeing it dispensed in their lives because that's not the purpose of who we are. That's not the life of a disciple. You add to your faith. You make every effort to do that. So, hey, I'm not meant to be a critic of, of the message or the text or whatever. I, I am meant to make every effort. How is this going to work itself out in my life? And we walk people along. That's what impacting people looks like. You say, are you making every effort? One of the first things I do when, whenever I've discipled guys in the past is, is I've given them a job. I've given them a task. It's some kind of assignment. And if they do it, then I continue down the discipleship process with them. But if they come back a week or two later and, and give me all these excuses, well, Steve, I was so busy, I had this, 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 and this, I give them one more shot. But if the excuses come again, and it's like, hey, I would love to work with you, but I have a limited capacity, 
right? Jesus made 12 disciples, and one of them really didn't turn out so good. And so if he, if he, if he can make 12, I don't, I don't know. I know my capacity is probably not what his is. So you got to make every effort here. And, and so we look for that. Are you, are you making every effort to add to your faith and then just go through the list? And is this true of me? Is this true of me? Another passage you need to master is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's that great famous pas- passage on love and what, what love really looks like. We've got such a distorted view of love in our culture, but you know, one of the prayers that I pray is, Lord, develop this type of love at Central, a love for God and for people based on the characteristics of love as you define it. And that's something only the Spirit of God can produce. That we can't produce this kind of love because it's not a love based on feeling or emotion or circumstance. It's simply an an act of the will. It it is a choice that says, I choose to love. I choose to set aside my life for your life so that you can grow and and, and you can be more. And and as you read through 1 Corinthians 13, one, one of the things you can do is every time you see the word love, Just take out the word love and put in the word Jesus. Put in the name Jesus for love. And you read that passage through in 1 Corinthians 13, and it still makes sense because Jesus is the perfect lover. And you read that through, and you say, yes, this makes sense. And then read it through again, only instead of substituting the name Jesus, substitute your name in that passage. And ask, does that make sense? Or does that read more like a joke? But the degree to which that makes sense, the degree to which you love like that, is an indication of how far along you are in the discipleship process, of how much the life of Christ is being reproduced in you. Another passage to jot down, Luke 2, verse 52. Luke 2, verse 52, it's a verse that we can, we can just read over oftentimes and just kind of pass through, but it says this, that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and man. You know what that verse tells us in essence? Is that Jesus developed as a whole person. Jesus did. And so if Jesus is developing as a whole person, we got to ask the question, am I developing as a whole person. I mentioned earlier Prof. Hendricks, and one of the things that so struck me is here's a man who could probably quote most of the Bible to you, and he was still an avid learner late in his life. I mean, he, he just read and read and read. He, he, he wanted to learn. And so I've got to ask the question, am I developing intellectually? Do I read? Do I study? Um, am I developing socially? Or am I some kind of social bore? Do, do I relate well to other people? Do I enjoy other people? Emotionally, am I developing emotionally? Or, or am I arrested at, at some kind of adolescent stage because of some experience that I had in the past, no matter how tragic? Or am I becoming emotionally mature? Spiritually, am I developing in my relationship with God, with others? Because that's what the life of a disciple looks like. It's a life of growth. 
that we never arrive, that, that we, we never fully in this life are fully conformed into the image of Christ. That's the goal, but we never reach it here. So are we continuing to grow? Is it continuing to be produced in our life? Or do we ever reach a place where, hey, I'm not going to make the effort anymore? Another passage for you, John 15, 5. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you understand that, that the life of a disciple is a total impossibility apart from God. What is the life of a disciple? It is the life of Christ. That's the way you test it. How much like Jesus do I look like? And see, I had this constant thing with God sometimes where I would like to impress God with how much I know of the scripture and how much I've studied the scripture and, and how much I understand it. He never seems to be impressed because he's given us his word. He expects us to know it. The question is, how much of this word impacts my life? How does this word make me look like Jesus? Am I applying what it says here to the way I live? That's the purpose of the scriptures, and that's the purpose of our lives, to look like Jesus, to be conformed to him. That's what the life of a disciple is all about. So that's the what. Second, I want to give you the where. The life of a disciple is the life of Christ reproduced in the believer. That's where a disciple happens. That, that's where the life of a disciple happens. It's reproduced in the life of a believer. Where, where does the life of a disciple take place? On some ideal island with some bionic believer? No. It takes place in you, in you. Colossians 1.27, can jot that one down. It's an incredible verse. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, with all of your hang-ups, with all of your strengths, with all of your gifts, with all of your talents, with all of your problems, with all of your background, with all your personality, it's Christ in you. No, I'm not trying to make someone else look like me. I'm trying to make them look like Jesus and how Jesus gets expressed through them and their personality with their gifts and their limitations and their strengths. It looks different than how Christ is expressed through me. And that, that's the beauty of the body of Christ is that he takes all these members with their distinctive coloration of personality and gifts and, and all that mix, and, and then in you and who he's created you to be in him with your background and all that. And this is why there's no room for a couple of things in the church. No room for three things. First, there's no room for comparison. So you understand, God will never compare you to another Christian. God will never say, oh, hey, you know Johnny over there? He's a whole lot farther along than you. What's going on? He'll never do that. Why? Because Johnny's not the standard. Christ is. Will he compare you to Christ? Yes, certainly. But no other believer. Because the other believer is not the standard. So there's no need for comparison in the church. 
My commitment, my devotion is to Jesus. Second, there's, there's no room for complaining in the church. I mean, Paul says to do everything without complaining or grumbling. But stop, stop blaming. Stop blaming background or parents or government or the church or other people or whatever. The life of Christ, the life of a disciple is a life of responsibility. That's what a life of a disciple is all about. That everything else is falling apart, everything else is going down. I have my devotion to Jesus, and that's my commitment. The world is broken. That's, that's like understood. It's messy. We don't complain about it. That's why we're here. That, that's why he has us here. Third, no excuses. No excuses. And this goes right along with, with, uh, with no complaining. But you see, God's method is always to take a dirty person, to clean them up, and then to send them back into a dirty, broken world and say, now impact people. This is your life. This is your mission. This is what you've got to do. There's, there's no excuses for that. We don't, well, you don't understand. My, my life has been hard. Yeah. God doesn't have like a list of commands for people whose life has been hard and a list of commands for people whose life has been easy. He says the standard for all of us is Jesus. And so, and he says, I will give you rest from all of that. And you look at people, I think that's why God, he goes through and we get the details of people's lives. And you go through and you read, you read the biographies of people in our Bible and you see men like Joseph and you talk about a hard life. Someone whose brothers throw him into slavery and he's ripped away from everything he's ever known, goes to a foreign country, is accused of rape and thrown into prison. And then Joseph makes this incredible statement, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So there's no excuses because God can take the evil and he can take the tragedy and he can take the brokenness and messiness of our lives and he's able to take that and repurpose it for his glory so that we can then impact others so that perhaps they don't have to live the hurt or they know how to deal with the hurt because we've been through it. He can use it for good. And this is what a life of a disciple looks like as we understand we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. There is no other hope. It's why we're here. It's why he's left us here and not just taken us right up to heaven. A disciple is defined by what he or she follows. You know that? That whatever we follow, that's what defines our life. And so as people look to you, what, what, what would they say defines your life? Is it... Uh, a sports team? Is it a hobby? Is it, is it something you enjoy doing? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it Jesus? What defines your life? A, def a disciple is defined by what he or she follows. And as Jesus is reproduced in our lives, this is where discipleship takes place, then that becomes the definition of who we are. We're defined by it because he doesn't leave us the same. He gives us a perspective, a worldview that is so different from the world that people take notice. Next, the, I, I want to give you the who. Who does this? Who makes this happen? 
The life of a disciple is the life of Christ reproduced in the life of the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the who. Ultimately, God invites me to be a part of the disciple-making process. God invites me to impact people. But it is the product of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who makes it happen. By the Holy Spirit empowering me to impact others and the Holy Spirit's work in their life to make a disciple. But that's who does it, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so um, Ephesians 5.18 is a verse you can write down. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Several passages to help us understand, you know, with the um, charismatic teaching about what filling of the Spirit means and looks like. I, I want to give you a couple passages just to help your thinking and maybe even start a study. I don't really have time to go through it thoroughly this morning, but uh, first is Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Every time you insist on doing what you know you should not do, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. When you do what you know you should not do, you grieve the Holy Spirit. Next, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Every time you resist the Holy Spirit and you don't do what you know he wants you to do, you quench the Spirit. You resist the Spirit. When you, say, when, when you feel like the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do something, and you say, you know what, I don't want to do that. That's quenching the Spirit. The last one, Galatians 5, verses 16 and 26. Verses 16 and 26. Walk by means of the Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit. And, and this one is, is really interesting. Because that first word... Um, that we translate walk, it means in the totality of your life, okay, in the Greek, the, in the totality of your life, as you live life, as you walk throughout life, walk by the power of the Spirit. In verse 26, it's a different word. We, we translate it walk because we don't really have a better word in the English, but in that one it means take each and every step. The ESV kind of brings that out. But um, take each and every step by means of the Spirit. And with these two words, God gives us this incredible metaphor. What is the life of a disciple? It's the totality of our lives that it would be governed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how does the whole of our life, how is the whole of our life governed by the Spirit? Well, each and every step, each and every movement that we make being governed by the Spirit. And you think about it, each, each step that you take is really a prelude to a fall, unless that other foot goes down, right? I mean, if I, if I go to take a step and then this foot doesn't go down for whatever reason and I just fall down, I'm, I fall. And Jesus is saying, hey, walk by means of the Spirit, that every step I take is empowered by him, and then the result of that is the, the totality of my life is then empowered by him. That's what the life of a disciple looks like. And how does that happen? It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. The life of a disciple is 
the life of Christ reproduced in the life of the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how does this happen? The how, an obedient response to the word of God. How is a disciple going to be made? An obedient response to God's word. I cannot make a disciple. I cannot engage in a disciple-making process apart from the truth of God's word. Because I don't have life-giving power. I don't have the truth. God has the truth. And so it must take place in context of his word. 1 Peter 2.2. As newborn babes develop an appetite for spiritual milk of the word in order that they might grow. We grow through our knowledge of the word. And notice, it doesn't say no. It doesn't say in order that they might know. You can't grow without knowing, but you can know and not grow. So a constant passion for the life of a disciple is, Lord, give me the strength and obsession to do your word as I understand it. Because I want to be a doer of the word, as James puts it. I want this to flow out of me. So I want to pass along a formula that was given to me, and I hope it's helpful for you, because all of us who are interested in spiritual growth, and I hope we all are, um, this is how it happens. That first is input of the word of God. Time in the word. Input of God's word. And this is why we should study this thing daily, right? We want to gather more, and we should pray, you know, Lord, fill my mind with your word. Okay, input of God's word plus obedience. Input of God's word plus obedience. See, the first step has to do with knowledge because we can't live the life of a disciple. It's not lived in a vacuum. It's lived in the, in the context of revealed truth. And, and back to the Great Commission, Jesus says, as you go, make disciples, teaching them to observe, to obey, to do everything I've commanded you to do. And we see this overall emphasis in the New Testament. And and Jesus says it plainly at one point, why do you call me Lord and you do not do what I say? And and you get that teaching throughout. Jesus said it plainly, but there's this implication being, hey, either stop calling me Lord or start doing what I'm saying. But you don't have the option to call me Lord and to ignore my commands because that doesn't make me Lord. God is not impressed by what we know. It's biblical truth. He expects us to know it. It's, the question is, do we obey it? Do we live it? And so we've got input of God's word plus obedience to his word plus time. Plus time equals spiritual growth. Input of God's word plus obedience, plus time, equals spiritual growth. So you can't telescope this thing out. You can't become a 45-year Christian in 45 days. And this is the most convicting thing that you will ask yourself, maybe every week, every month, every year, is over the course of the last period of time, how much more do I look like Jesus as a result of my time in the word and my obedience to God's word? How has my life been more conformed to look like Jesus? 
And if you don't see any signs of spiritual growth, then somewhere along the line, the discipleship process has stunted. Because we should constantly be more conformed to the image of Christ. And the only way to speed that up is intake of his word. You want to become more a man, a woman of God, and I hope we all do. It's time in his word. Then plus uh, obedience to it. And, I, and there's no way to speed that process up apart from time. And, you know, studying God's word, it is basic to the life of a disciple. It's not optional. But when you study and when you obey, obey and over the course of time, you will mature. And you might not even notice it. You know, Jesus talks a lot about agriculture. And, you know, when seeds just start to sprout and plant, it's a slow process. And you might not even notice that the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in you and you are looking more like Jesus, but others in your family will. Others where you work will. Others in your neighborhood will. They'll take notice. Hey, you're not the same person you used to be. You, you, you're, you're a little more patient. You, you seem to have a smile on your face a little more often now. You're much more encouraging. They, they will begin to take notice. And, but when you have someone, and, and you, know, you can have someone who studies God's word, obeys God's word, spends time there, and they begin to grow. And you can have a five-year-old believer who is more spiritually mature than a 25-year-old believer. Why? Because they haven't invested the time, the energy, the effort to obey what is written in God's word. But that's where spiritual maturity comes from, from studying, obeying over the course of time. And I will tell you, I am more confident in the power of God through the word of God to accomplish this in the life of his people than I've ever been in my life. Because I see the change that takes place in people. I see the hope. I see the joy. I, I, I see what's done in my own life. That God's word doesn't return void. That when you study it and you obey it and you live it, it changes lives. It impacts people. And so as we engage in this disciple-making process, every time we intentionally invest in the life of another person to impact them to look more like Jesus, we're a part of the disciple-making process. And we've got limited capacity, each of us. You know, Jesus, he invested significantly in 12 guys. There were others who he impacted, called disciples, and they were more at a distance, and they heard his teaching, but then they needed other men and women of God to come alongside of them and help them grow. But see, see this process is not just for pastors. It's not just for spiritually elite. It's for all of us to impact people, to look around and to say, hey, who, who maybe is not as far along this discipleship road as I am? And can I spend some time with you? Can I, can I pour into your life? I want to be intentional about this. And these are some places to start. These are some passages to go to. to say, I, I want to see the life of Christ reproduced in you. That's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to God's word. And then if you ever get into the process, the temptation will come to get frustrated sometimes. Because Jesus had Judas, you know. 
And sometimes you'll engage and you'll pour out and you'll spend time trying to impact people to look like Jesus. And then they're going to blow it terribly and they will fall and they might even turn away. And you've got to ask the question, why did that happen? Why did that happen? And i got to tell you, the problem is never here. Sometimes we'll wonder, I know that God's word is supposed to produce the life of Christ, and yet you look more like Satan right now. I mean, as you read and study the Bible, and then I see this bitterness and this gossip and this jealousy, and the word of God produces this? The people of God act like this? What's going on? The problem is never here. The problem is always either with my ability to communicate it or with their obedience to it, or sometimes both. But this is never the problem. God's given us a great mission, a big mission for all of us, for the church, to share Jesus and to impact people. The only way we can impact people is to know, is to have this confidence that that the life of a disciple is the life of Christ reproduced in the life of the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedient response to God's word. There's no other way to make a disciple. No other way to do it. And so that's, that's the exciting mission. I'm telling you, we should be more jazzed, more excited for what God has called us to do in this generation, that he's handpicked us to live at this time, at this culture, to reach our people. This is an exciting privilege that we all get to be a part of. May we do it and live it well. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be your representatives. And God, as we go out and we live our lives, as we go to make disciples, to impact people, Help us to do it with a great sense of joy, with optimism. May may the fruit of the Spirit be so evident in our lives as we lead that others just can't miss it. And God, as you intentionally invested in the lives of men and women, may we do the same for your glory. We recognize we can't do this by our own power, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit, And through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.